Welcome to Doctors at Work. My name is Matt Daniel and this podcast is about doctors' careers. Today we're discussing what's a career in oculoplastic surgery like. Lorraine Abercrombie tells me about her career journey into oculoplastic surgery. She describes the types of patients she sees and the procedures she performs and shares both challenges and her most satisfying moments. Her career tips are to work hard and be nice to people, which is a good tip for whatever specialty one works in. Welcome, Lorraine. Tell me a little bit about yourself. So I'm an oculoplastic surgeon and I'm a consultant that's worked at the Queen's Medical Centre in Nottingham for the past 23 years. Um, I am married and I am the mother to three children. Um, And I suppose as a result of that, I have few actual really keen hobbies. I do have some interests. gardening, walking, and I'm very keen at road cyclists. Um, and that's probably about all I've got myself, really. What is oculoplastic surgery? So oculoplastic surgery is a subspecialty of ophthalmology. And if you were going to be an oculoplastic surgeon, you would train first as an ophthalmologist so that you have an understanding of, of the eye and the surface of the eye and its needs. And so the oculoplastic surgery is surgery of the eyelids and also surgery of the nasolacrimal system and surgery for some oculoplastic surgeons, it's surgery of the orbit. Um, But it varies depending on the centre that you work in as to how much or how little of those three things that you will be doing. Mm -hmm. And... How did you end up being an oculoplastic surgeon? So, as a basic um, thought, I had always wanted to be a doctor from being a very small child. And I'm not sure really why that was, because I didn't have any doctors in my family. And then when I went to medical school and it got to, I got to be in the fourth year and started career choice. I was drawn to surgery. And at that time, when I looked at the female role models in Mersey region, where I was training, there were actually only two female surgeons. One was a consultant urologist, and the other was a senior registrar in general surgery. And and that was it in the whole of Mersey region. And I looked at that and I thought, gosh, I can't imagine um, having a career in general surgery, plastic surgery. Um, It was very male orientated. And more than that, within my uh, medical school, the people who were were inclined to follow general surgery seemed to be very, very alpha male. And um, I'd done ophthalmology, or in the fifth year, we went to St. Paul's, which was the standalone eye hospital in Liverpool at that time, and went down to St. Paul's and enjoyed ophthalmology. I'd also done ophthalmology as an elective in third year. And um, and it occurred to me that there, there were three or four senior registrars at St. Paul's who were female. And I, and I went and had a meeting with one of them and had a chat about what, what it had been like for her with her training and what her hopes and expectations were from a career in the future. And, and I just 
thought as a pragmatic approach, this would seem to be something that I think I could um, be successful in compared to all the other branches of surgery that were available at that time. And so when I uh, finished my house jobs, I went and um, taught um, anatomy in Leeds and passed the fellowship, and which was actually only the third sitting of the primary ophthalmology FRCO. Um, and then after that, I got a fantastic job because um, one of the ophthalmologists in Leeds who was quite encouraging for me to join the Leeds ophthalmology rotation that they were going to just set up as a, as, as a brand new four-year rotation, he said to me, you know, before you go into ophthalmology and become very channeled in ophthalmology, you should get some exposure in other parts of medicine. So do a six-month job in something like neurology, general medicine, neurosurgery, A&E, whatever. And I got this year job, which was six months in A&E and six months in neurosurgery. And in some ways, it, it was an absolutely fantastic opportunity. I went to the, to um, Sheffield, to the Northern General Hospital, the six months after the Hillsborough disaster. And that, that was a fantastic, um, fantastic run A&E department with quite a lot of heavy industry to see. Um, it was a, a really good experience of seeing patients quite quickly and coming to make a decision quite quickly. And then when I did neurosurgery, that, that was a really challenging job, but in a very different way. I got to work with six men very closely. So there were three consultants and there were three trainees. And then there was me as this new SHO. It was a, the, a new role that they were having as, as an SHO. And, um, and we started off every day at eight o'clock. And we, as a group of three, three uh, trainees and the, the senior registrars and I, the four of us would meet at eight o'clock every day and we would go through all the CT scans of the patients that had come in the night that may or may not have been operated on or just the people that had uh, subarachnoid hemorrhages that didn't need an operation. And then we'd look at all the images that um, for the patients that were being operated on for the day. And then we'd go off and we'd do, do the day's work. And for me, a lot of the time, it was actually assisting in theatres with, with the, with the uh, bosses as, as the sort of trainee or second assistant. And then at the end of the day, we met up again at half past five and we went through all the CT scans again. And we went through the CT scans of all the people that had been admitted during the day. And it was an absolutely fantastic experience for actually getting into the habit and having the confidence to look at your own CT scans and look at them first and then get out the report to see what the report said and then sort of cross-reference. And subsequently, that became really important um, for running an orbital service because actually in orbital surgery, the um, particularly when you're on call, the reports are read by people that might have done a month, six months, two years, radiology. Um, and, and it's a very, very small subset overall of neuroradiology. So it became very a great skill to have, to be, have the confidence to look at your own images. And then following on from that, I uh, did a four-year four -year training rotation in the Yorkshire region. And that was quite difficult from the perspective that um, at that point, of course, it was very pyramid-shaped, wasn't it, the training? And it was a big jump to go from a senior registrar to registrar. And I passed all these exams as 
quickly as you could pass them. And so after two years, I was looking for registrar's job, except in that year when I was looking, there were only eight jobs that weren't in London. And, and at that time, I had some difficult family circumstances such that I felt I wouldn't want to be applying to a job in London. So the, the actual scope of what I was applying to was really quite narrow. And it actually took me two years to actually get a registrar's job because every time I went for one of the jobs that I was getting shortlisted, but there'd be people with three or four years um, experience, um, two years more experience than me, because obviously there was a bottleneck now of people that had passed the exams before me that were trying to get the jobs. But finally, when I, I got a, um, a registrar's job in Manchester, and that's when the run-through training came in. And um, so the Manchester was a very good training. And at that point, I was thinking I'd really like to do vitreo-retinal surgery. And I was making arrangements and getting everything ready to do this really good vitreo-retinal fellowship in Manchester. And then, I, and then I had my baby. And I had my baby and I, and I just thought, you know, realistically, this, was, this fellowship was a job where every other weekend, you were operating on call as the fellow and every other night. And, and I thought, realistically, I don't think I can do that and, and look after a, a, a baby. So I slightly changed tack at that point and thought, well, actually, oculoplastics is probably going to be an easier rotation for training. And as, again, another pragmatic approach, mm -hmm. um, I managed to um, become the first oculoplastic fellow in Newcastle on the Newcastle on the Newcastle um, training program and went with James to spend six years, six months in Newcastle um, doing a fellowship. And then I came back to Manchester and did another 12 months fellowship in Manchester and then was fortunate enough to get my job in Nottingham. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. It was, quite a, it was quite a long time. I think it took from... Um, 1988 until 2000, so 12 years it was of, of training to get to the end point. Yeah. And um, I'm interested in just going back a few steps. You know, you talked about looking around and seeing the roles that, that women were in and, and how that influenced um, career decision making. Um, I suppose, you know, th things have moved on, I'm sure. But how, how, how do you think things are? at the moment for for women surgeons seeing women role models? So I think it's a lot more positive now. Um, when, when I came to Nottingham, I was the only female and the first female consultant. Now I think there are five female consultants in um, ophthalmology. And also in general surgery, my husband was a, a very successful general surgeon colorectal surgeon and and he has always been very supportive of females and for instance um in colorectal surgery now in our hospital there are at least four i think female mm. colorectal surgeons they're female vascular surgeons in our hospital female ent surgeons um i think when i came to the trust there was only probably two females in the whole of the trust out of about 500 consultants so it's there are a lot more role models and I think the role models are very positive role models as well mm -hmm. so I think there's a lot more 
a lot more opportunity than was on one hand. Of course, the lack of opportunity, I would say, comes from the changes that have occurred generically in the training system. So things like the the, the hours that you, that, uh, you spend in the working, your senior working time barracks and things like that. I hope you're enjoying the show. Please click subscribe so you'll be notified when new episodes become available. This podcast is part of my mission to help doctors create successful and meaningful careers. You can be part of that mission too by forwarding this show to one person who you think might benefit from listening. Thank you. Now on with the show. So talk, talk me through your week as an oculoplastic surgery consultant. What do you do in an average week? So things have changed slightly as I have evolved my career because I now have more management responsibilities than, than I previously had. So now, for instance, on a Monday, I will be doing um, work from home where I may be looking through a lot of results looking at emails um i would be doing other things like this or um i'm also one of the lead appraisers in our trust so it, it would be a day where i might be reading through people's um appraisal documentation tuesday is the all day operating list and that would start at half past 7 when i meet with paul who is my waiting list coordinator and Paul and I spend about half an hour going through the operating diary for the six weeks ahead and just uh, confirming what we're doing and making any adjustments that we might need to make. And then at eight o'clock, I would meet with my fellow or trainee if we have one, and then we'll go to the ward and we'll look at the patients that we're operating on today. And um, Some of these patients may need consenting because they'll have had... Um, a type of surgery the day before, such that today's the first time we're seeing them after their, uh, their surgery to excise their lesions. And so we would consent them on the day. And then that, that list starts at half past eight with our huddle, and then it will finish any time, five o'clock, five thirty, six o'clock. Mm-hmm. And occasionally it might finish later than that. And then we would go to the ward, look at the patients, and then I would normally go back to my room and just make sure if there was anything important on my desk to check. Wednesday's all-day clinic. Thursday would be um, a virtual clinic that I would do. So that that tends to be telephone or occasionally it might be video. But telephone works quite well, I would say, in plastics for for a very selected group of patients. Um, Then at lunchtime, there is the skin MDT where we discuss patients with skin cancer and formulate plans for them. Thursday afternoon would be an opportunity for me to actually meet appraisees and do a, a pra- appraisals with appraisees. Um, Friday morning, I would be at my desk in the trust doing um, things like appraiser feedback or um, meetings to do with the appraiser faculty. Or sometimes I might find that somebody comes and finds me at my desk and says, can you look at these scans? Or I've seen this patient this week in, in A&E, what do you think about that? Or even can you come down and look at 
the syslis because somebody's turned up to the syslis with this massive tumour. Come and have a look at it. And then Fridays are teaching afternoon M&M, but once in every four weeks on a Friday afternoon, we do the thyroid eye disease clinic, which is a very specialised tertiary clinic with our endocrinology colleagues. Mm-hmm. And what kind of patients do you have? So within oculoplastics, I would say individuals will have a slightly different repertoire of patients depending on where they work and what the other support around them is. So the job here in Nottingham has always been very orientated towards treating patients with skin cancers. And that is partly because when I came to Nottingham, there were only about five centres in the country that did most surgery, which is a very, it's the Rolls-Royce way of removing skin cancers. And um, and so it, 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 it was one of the first centres to have most surgery. And that really has evolved in Nottingham. So now I would expect more than 50% of my time to be taken up reconstructing patients with defects following their most surgery or indeed treating patients where their their, um, lesion is not suitable for most surgery. So, for instance, if it was the skin cancer has stretched onto the eye itself and they would need operations like accentuation where we remove all the orbital contents. Um, so a large part of the practice is with those patients. There's quite a large practice of patients with lacrimal problems, so a watery eye. We do a lot of external uh, dacrocystostomies where we make um, a connection between the, the lacrimal sac and the nose. And we also do quite a lot of surgery for patients where the higher part of the nasal nasal lacrimal system is damaged such that a standard DCR would not work. And so we use a foreign foreign body tube called a Lester-Jones tube. And that we do in conjunction with our ENT colleagues. And um, I do that with one of of your colleagues um, on an adult basis when we usually have three or four patients and do them on a list together. then there is um, a smaller but very interesting and challenging group of people to see who have orbital diseases. And so these, some of these patients have thyroid eye disease. Some of them have orbital tumours. And for them, the challenge is trying to define um, what you think the the type of tumour is likely to be and whether it's appropriate to actually just do an incisional biopsy or whether or not an excisional biopsy is more suitable. Um, so essentially it's it's a repertoire of about 80 different operations. Mm-hmm. You know, we've not mentioned things like the eyelid malpositions that we do with on droopy eyelids or turned in, turned out eyelids, which are the local anaesthetic procedures and a bit the sort of basic procedures that you could go and have done in most centres where they have Mm -hmm. Mm oculoplastics. It's a a repertoire of about 80 operations and I think that's part of what keeps you interested in it is that there's quite a lot of variation. What are the most challenging aspects of the job? Um, So 
for me, I have always found it, it's keeping a tr- it's keeping in your head a, a list of patients who potentially could be in a lot of trouble. Because when you see these patients and you might order a CT scan on them or you might order, you might biopsy them and be waiting for biopsy results. Um, it's always thinking what's happened to X, what's happened to Y, where's Z, check check that that results come back, has that scan been done, do we need to send a prompt or whatever. Um, because for some of these patients, if if they slip off the radar and they are lost, then some of these patients have diseases that um, are life-threatening or others it's sight-threatening or others um, loss of your eye. So it's mainly mainly having the accountability, the ownership and the responsibility for these patients and your way of trying to keep track of them, making sure that they don't... don't, um, Slip, slip away. And what are the best bits of the job? Well, the best bit of the job is the um, happy patient. You know, you hear a lot nowadays about how much doctors are paid and whether they're paid too much, the right amount or not enough. And people, people have compared doctor's salaries when they're talking to me with say working for a a hedge fund in London that their people in their medical school now do or whatever but for me you know to have a patient look in the mirror and um, look at their eyelids that we've made new eyelids for and and feel really pleased with them and and for these patients where they've got skin cancers you know skin cancers are not attractive to start off with so for for many of these patients, they actually look much better afterwards than they did before we started, although many of them are really concerned about that they'll look much worse. But them, for them to look at the mirror and say, I'm really pleased, doctor, and um, my, my, my relatives don't notice, my friends, they never, they can't see what, what they've had done. You, you can't buy that appreciation and, and the fact that people are pleased with what you've, what you've done. And then my final question for somebody who's contemplating a career in oculoplastic surgery, what would be your top tips? Well, my top tip for any doctor, which is a bit generic, is work hard and be kind to everybody. Because, you know, everybody, much as you want to do the best that you can, you'll always, there's always a time when you need somebody else's help. And if you're kind to everybody and you help others, Others will help you when when you're in difficulty. And then on top of that, I think I've I've always believed that in oculoplastics, if you are striving all the time to be the best possible that you can be and your standard to be very high and hold yourself to a high standard, everybody has a day where the day doesn't go well for them. Either they didn't sleep well that night or something else happened and their day is not as good as their average day. If your standard is very high at all times, then even when you've had a bad day, the result is still going to be okay. So it it would be to strive for a high standard and um, be resilient because it's a long training 
to do the work, the range of work that my practice is would easily take two two years of fellowships. Um, and, and it takes quite a lot of resilience to keep going and and have the belief at the end of the day that that you will get a job because you know the, it's one of the subspecialties of ophthalmology where the jobs are scarcer. You know there aren't new jobs popping up for, for oculoplastic surgeons like there have been in other parts of ophthalmology. So it's to remain resilient and determined, and um, and yeah, it's a great career. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Lorraine.